Hi everybody, we're back for part three of our lectures on chapter one. In this uh, lecture, we're going to be looking at cultural geography, cultural coherence and diversity. We're also going to be looking at the geopolitical framework uh, across the globe and looking at some of the concepts in geopolitics. And then we'll also take a look at economic and social development. And then that should finish up chapter one. So as I said, we're going to start off with cultural coherence and diversity. And I guess the first place to start is by, is by asking you a question. How do you define culture? What is culture? What does that term mean to you? And it can mean a variety of different things to people. Um, but I think your textbook really does a very good job in, in explaining culture uh, and defining it when they say that culture is a learned and shared behavior. Culture includes both abstract and material dimensions. So, um, you know, the question then is, well, what do we mean by material and abstract dimensions of culture? And let's start off with the abstract. The abstract uh, dimensions of culture are, can be a society's or a group of people's belief systems, can be their set of values and things like that. Uh, those are things that you can't really touch, you can't put your hand on, uh, but you know what they are. And then the material dimensions of culture uh, are things like, well, I guess, uh, like you see in the photograph on the right on this slide, uh, the men playing cricket. That's a material form of culture. Uh, culture, sports is part of our culture, and clearly this is something that you can see. It's something you can touch if you want to. It's something that you can put your hand on. Food might be another form, of, uh, another material dimension of culture, uh, because we know that different cultures have different foods. Uh, there's different uh, food taboos in different cultures. So for example, you'll find that there's pork avoidance in much of uh, Southwest Asia and North Africa because Muslims as well as Jews both avoid, avoid the uh, eating of pork. Uh, that can be another uh, material form of culture. The utensils that we use to eat our food. Uh, you know, in the United States we use forks, but in many parts of East Asia they use chopsticks. Um, that's another material form of culture. Um, I think that um, one of the things that we need to understand is that cultures are not static. They're constantly changing. And globalization really helps us to, uh, really helps to uh, feed that process of cultural change as cultures move from one place to another, either through media, uh, through television and movies and things like that, or from people actually migrating to new areas and taking their culture with them. So we also want to understand how uh, cultures are making places more similar to one another, but we also want to understand what happens when cultures collide. And uh, I guess, uh, once again, looking at the photographs on this slide, slide number 25, you can see that uh, in South Asia, men are playing cricket, which is a very much a British sport. And so cricket was brought to this region of the world through British colonization uh, in, in, this, uh, in South Asia. More recently, you know, uh, we can see what happens when cultures collide through the image uh, of Gujarat in India. Um, this is a terrorist attack. Uh, a terrorist attack often occurs when uh, uh, outside influence tries to change or is accused of changing the culture of, a, of an area, and particularly a very traditional area of the world. And a more modern culture comes in and affects the values and the beliefs of the people in, of that culture. So uh, there's a couple terms that we want to look at, and one of those is cultural imperialism. 
uh, cultural imperialism is the active promotion of one culture system, cultural system at the expense of another. The United States is very often accused of cultural imperialism because uh, it, wherever you go across the globe, you can find things like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Pizza Hut and things like that. And these are symbols of the United States. It's symbols of the U.S. culture. It's symbols of the U.S. economy. Uh, so we're very often accused of that. Now, I think that's a little too simplistic to accuse the United States of cultural imperialism. Um, you know, certainly the British or the French uh, during the colonial period also could have been uh, accused of cultural imperialism as they imposed their languages and their religions on their colonies. Um, so I think it's a little simplistic, and I think one of the things that we also need to understand is that different societies will accept uh, pieces of a culture, of a new culture that fits with their values and belief systems. And I'll talk a bit more about that uh, in a few seconds. We also want to understand cultural nationalism. Cultural nationalism is the process of protecting and defending a cultural system. Uh, the best example that I can think of really is, is in France, where they require a certain percentage of radio, uh, of, of music that's played on the radio to be uh, by French, uh, by French, French performers and artists, uh, because they, f because the French really fear that their culture is being diluted uh, from the influences of, particularly American influences and British influences, but more recently from the influences of uh, the migrants that have come from North Africa, uh, and really are very different than than the French people because they're. For the most part, a lot of those migrants are, are, are black and they're Muslim. And so there's a, a real kind of uh, fear that the French culture is going to be diluted. And then I also want to talk about cultural synchronization or hybridization. And I think this is really important to understand because I think really when we look at culture and look at cultural geography, this is what's occurring across the globe um, at a variety of different rates at a variety of different levels. Cultural synchronization or hybridization is the blending of cultures to form a new type of culture. So let me give you the example. Um, you know, here in the United States, uh, Mexican food has become really popular. Um, and you know, quite frankly, I like Mexican food quite a bit. But it's not the same Mexican food that you would get in Mexico. It has been Americanized to suit American tastes. Okay, so while we call it Mexican food, it's really been Americanized. And maybe most of the ingredients are, you know, traditional Mexican ingredients in their food. But the level of spices and things like that have been Americanized to suit American tastes. Another example would be Chinese food in the United States. Um, if you've ever been to China, and I have been to China, the Chinese food in the United States that you get in the typical Chinese restaurant is nothing compared to what you would get in, a, in China. Uh, you know, for the most part, vegetables and fruits and those sorts of things are much different than we have here in the United States. And the Chinese food that's served here, once again, has been Americanized to serve American taste. Another example that I always like to give is if you've ever been to India and you've been to a McDonald's um, in India or a Burger King, well, one of the things you know, first off, is that most people in India are vegetarians. That is, they won't eat beef. So you're not going to get a hamburger in McDonald's or Burger King in India. What you will get is a vegetable uh, patty, 
uh, that replaces the burger part of it. Uh, in McDonald's, they're called Maharaja burgers. Uh, so, I mean, it's a similar thing, except it's a vegetarian version of a Big Mac. I guess that's a good way to think about it, okay? And so you can see uh, th through the different images and so forth, different cultures and how they've been, uh, you know, we have the Asian woman, you know, on their cell phone and those sorts of things, you know, the pretty stereotypical stuff that we look at when we look at culture. Uh, but I think these uh, three things are really important to understand. Now we talk about languages, and uh, you know, obviously there's thousands of different languages across the world. There's uh, a variety of different uh, families and branches and things that look like that that we'll talk about as well. So language is very entwined with culture. We usually identify ethnic groups with the language that they speak. For example, the, uh, the Japanese speak Japanese, the Chinese speak Chinese, uh, you know, uh, we can look at uh, Swahili in Africa and look at a variety of different ethnic groups and things like that. Uh, so languages and cultures are very intertwined. Uh, languages are usually classified into families, branches, and groups, and you can see from this uh, map that I have on, the, uh, on here, we have the world languages, and these are, um, uh, is a map of largely what we would call language families, the broadest group, and you can see in the United States, most people speak English, or they could you know, speak Spanish in, in some parts of the, of the country. Uh, but those, those uh, languages are really related to uh, the Indo-European family of languages, which is the largest family uh, uh, in the world. Uh, and it takes in a large number of languages, as you can see, not just English, but also you know, the Romance languages, such as Spanish and Portuguese, Italian, French, uh, the German, Germanic languages, German, uh, Dutch, and things like that. So uh, it's a very broad um, uh, language family. And then you can see uh, the uh, stop sign in Dubai is written both in Arabic, but it's also written in English as well, uh, which indicates, uh, which is another interesting thing. When I was in China, you know, everything's obviously written in Chinese, but when you go to like the train stations and things like that, it's also written in English. So Chinese and English, uh, which, you know, is illustrating the significance of English as, uh, as a, as a, as a, what we would call a lingua franca, um, or a world language, or a, a, a language that's adopted from people from different cultural groups who cannot speak each other's languages. M you know, many people in China cannot speak English, and obviously a lot of people can't spe uh, speak Chinese, so uh, uh, in some cases we adopt a, a, a different language, or uh, English is becoming widely taught in Chinese schools, so a lot of, you know, a lot of people are starting to understand English in those places. We also talk about dialect. Uh, it's a dis distinctive form associated with a specific language, uh, American and British English. Uh, while the words are very similar, they're very often spelled the same. Sometimes we pronounce them differently. Sometimes they're used differently and things like that um, is another thing to think about when we talk about languages. Religion, obviously, is very important because it really does help us to understand a culture's values, its beliefs, and things like that. So um, religions are important in defining cultural identity. Uh, people identify very strongly with their religion, as they do with their language, and it also helps, them to, helps us to define different ethnic groups and, and so forth. 
when we look at religions, we typically look at two very broad categories. We look at universalizing religions that attempt to appeal to all peoples and actively seek new converts. And examples might, would be Christianity and Islam. We can also look at ethnic religions that remain closely identified with specific groups of people. Uh, these usually do not actively seek new converts, so we can think of Judaism as a good example. It doesn't typically seek out new converts and, and is typically associated with a particular ethnic group. Hinduism is another uh, uh, religion that's uh, considered to be an ethnic religion. Um, usually you know, very small numbers outside of India and South Asia, um, largely because it doesn't seek out converts. Uh, to the religion, and it's very closely um, aligned with India. I mean, that's its territory, that's its home. Um, so it's usually identified with that particular region of the world. And I think another important thing for us to understand when we talk about religion is this whole notion of secularization. Uh, secularization is a situation whereby people consider themselves either non-religious or, quite frankly, atheistic. Uh, you know, there's, uh, and uh, you'll find this in many parts of the world, particularly in East Asia, uh, particularly in Japan. Most people would see themselves uh, as uh, being uh, uh, secular. China isn't really a, a religious country, uh, uh, and other parts of the world as well. Uh, and then you can see from this map where different where different religions dominate. You can see we have Shiite Islam, and uh, what in uh, the southern part of Iraq and Iran and some other parts of South Asia. We have Shiite Islam throughout um, Southwest Asia and North Africa. And then Judaism obviously is associated with Israel. Um, Eastern Orthodox is very closely associated with uh, Eastern Europe, many parts of Eastern Europe, but also Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can see Roman Catholicism in South America and so forth. So you can identify these different patterns. And we'll be talking more in detail about the influence of religion on these different parts of the world as we visit the different regions throughout the course. So let's talk a little bit about geopolitics and the geopolitical uh, framework uh, of, um, of the globe. Uh, when we talk about geopolitics, we're really refer referring to the relationship between geography and politics. Okay, um, it focuses on the relationship between power, territory, and space. Who controls what territory? Uh, who lives in a territory but does not have uh, any power within that territory? How much space? When we look at uh, geographic space, we're trying to figure out, okay, how much space is taken up by a certain group of people and, and how much space do they control? Uh, usually em emphasizes a state-to-state -state relationship. So how do states relate to one another? Are they friendly with one another? Do they have uh, conflicts with one another? Uh, are there groups of people who live in states, uh, in a variety of different states, but actually have no state to control, uh, to, uh, uh, that they control for themselves? It's controlled by other groups of people. So these are some of the things that we'll be talking about, not just now, but also in the future as we go through the various um, various uh, regions of the world. So 
a couple definitions, and you may not be used to, used to these definitions, so I think it's good that we highlight them. States, when, we ta when we're talking about ge uh, political geography and geopolitics, when we refer to a state, we're talking about a political entity with territorial boundaries recognized by other countries and internally governed. So, you know, France is a state, okay? State is usually synonymous with country, okay? Uh, nation, on the other hand, uh, this might be a little bit different than what you're used to. A nation is a large group of people who are shared who share numerous socio-cultural elements, such as language, religion, tradition, and identity. So I used the French before, and we use French as, as, a, uh, as a state, but we can also use the French people as a nation. Now, ideally, right, the nation, that group of people, the French people, would line up uh, exactly with the territory. Uh, which and with are enclosed. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. Quite frankly, we can't even use France as a good example because there have been so many immigrants coming into the country that it's a, it's a multicultural state. There's a variety of different cultures. The United States is another example. It's a multicultural country. Um, sure, we have our boundaries that sets us apart as a state, uh, and most people in the United States will identify themselves as American, whatever that means, uh, but there's also a whole variety of different cultures as well, so we're really a multicultural state. So when we combine this idea of nation and state, nation-state relatively homogeneous cultural group occupying its own independent political territory, like I said, there's very few examples across the globe that we could identify as a true nation-state. Japan might be one, Korea might be another, because most of the people, just about all the people in Japan, will identify themselves as Japanese, and Japanese ethnicity, and ancestry, and things like that. Same situation in Korea, okay? Uh, but there are very, very few uh, true nation states across the globe. Um, we can also talk about stateless nations, and the map here that you can see is um, the Kurdish territory, it, that spans into essentially four different countries, into Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and Iran. Uh, and there's approximately 29 million Kurds. They would like to have that territory for themselves, but they are prevented from having that territory for themselves because what that would mean is that those four countries where they're scattered across would lose territory. Okay. Then, of course, there's uh, those groups of people who would like to separate themselves, the Basque or another uh, a group of people in northern um, northern Spain uh, and and the southern part of France, actually, right in the Pyrenees Mountains, right along the Span Spanish and French border, that would like to set them separate themselves from Spain and France and have their own territory. Uh, colonialism is an important factor for understanding today's world because it was really many of the uh, conflicts that we see in the world today uh, are uh, the results of the former colonial uh, uh, division of the world. Uh, and you can see from this map, we're looking at the colonial possessions in 1914 when much of the world was divided up into colonies. Uh, that started to end. Uh, countries uh, started to gain, many countries started to gain their independence uh, during the, uh, during after World War I, 
uh, particularly with the Germans losing and get, uh, having to give up their colonies and the uh, Ottoman Turkish Empire uh, being defeated as well and having to get, uh, give up much of their territory. But colonialism is the formal establishment of rule over a foreign population. And you probably have heard uh, the saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And I think if you look at the British Empire in this map, you can see why we have that, uh, why that statement is true. You can see the British Empire stretched from Canada in the Western Hemisphere uh, to, uh, the, uh, to the African continent, both in the northern part around Egypt and what is today Sudan and South Sudan, and to the southern part of Sub-Saharan Africa uh, with um, uh, Botswana and places like that, and then of course into South Asia, Southeast Asia, and then of course into, at one time, uh, Australia and New Zealand as well. And then we want to talk about decolonization, which uh, really uh, started to uh, come about after World War II, after, uh, because uh, many of the European colonial powers uh, saw their economies, uh, particularly the French and the British, saw their, uh, saw their own countries uh, devastated. And so they had to kind of focus more inward and uh, uh, you know, rebuild their infrastructure, rebuild their factories, get their economies restart, and things like that. And there was really no uh, <coughs> um, effort. To, well, there was some effort to try to hold on to the colonies, but people were pretty tired of war, and they didn't want to have to fight to hold on to the colonies. And so many countries in South Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Africa gained their independence uh, in the post-World uh, War II era, particularly in the 50s, 1950s and the 1960s. So decolonization is the process of a colony's gaining control over its own territory and establishing an independent government. And we'll talk more about this as we go through each of the different regions of the world. So uh, global terrorism is another thing that we need to talk about, unfortunately. Global terrorism... Uh, and insurgency is a process whereby rebellious or separatist groups seek independence. I had mentioned the Basque. Uh, in some cases, they're uh, identified, particularly by the Spanish, as a, uh, by a, terror as a terrorist organization. Uh, rebellious or separatist groups seek independence, uh, autonomy, territorial control. Uh, even the Basque, as I mentioned, are often seen as a terrorist organization uh, because they often commit acts of violence against the Turks and some of the other countries where they're spread across. Terrorism refers to violence directed at non-military targets to achieve political goals. Uh, global terrorism is understood as both a product and a reaction to, uh, to terrorism. So uh, the 9-11 tax uh, on New York City could be seen as a product of globalization because the terrorists were able to use the tools of globalization uh, airline flight, things like that, uh, uh, global communications to uh, that enabled them to do those attacks. And uh, as a reaction, uh, as a reaction to globalization, uh, many groups, um, as, as the image of Gujarat showed, as a as a modernizing culture comes into a more traditional culture, may rebel against that modernizing culture. Okay, so we talk about counterterrorism, and that's you know the U.S. Uh, going in, uh, U.S. and other countries going into uh, countries to try to do, uh, to uh, destroy the terrorist organizations, and then the counterinsurgency 
um, a similar thing that we saw in Iraq, especially during the Iraq War when the U.S. military was there, uh, the rebellion by many Iraqis against the U.S. military, you know, an insurgency. And of course, the U.S. had to fight against that insurgency uh, to put those uh, uprisings down. So we're going to talk about wealth and poverty. And one of the things that becomes very clear uh, geographically is that there's some parts of the world that are well off, that are, uh, I guess we could say, wealthy, and other parts of the world uh, quite frankly, where the vast majority of people live in poverty. And that's really a result of global capitalism because global capitalism creates uh, uh, places on, of unequal uh, development, unequal wealth, and, uh, and poverty. So uh, we're going to take a look first at um, uh, economic development. Um, and I guess I should mention when we talk about development and growth, we're talking about two different things. Uh, economic development generally refers to increased prosperity of people, regions, and nations. It usually, uh, and quite frankly, I would argue it needs to include social improvements, such as improved education, um, educational systems, better health care, uh, better labor practices, progressive labor, labor uh, pro, uh, practices. Uh, when we talk about ethnic economic growth, we're talking about enlarging the economic system. That doesn't necessarily mean we improve human conditions. It just means that the system is getting bigger. It could be that those at the top of the economic system are reaping all the benefits from the growth of the system, and those at the bottom are not receiving any of the benefits. So uh, then we also, can also talk about economic development, often, as I mentioned, often often exhibits geographic unevenness of prosperity and social improvement. Approximately half the world's population is classified as living in poverty by the United Nations. And so you can see from this, um, from this uh, particular graph uh, over here on the right, we're looking at the rise and fall of the global economy. We're also looking at the, Christ, uh, the price of crude oil. Uh, because crude oil uh, very often um, um, is the driver of economic uh, development, or it's the main energy source for economic development, for manufacturing and so forth. When it increases in price, uh, economic growth usually slows. Uh, so uh, that's what we're looking here. And then, of course, you can see uh, impoverished brick workers in India in the, in the image on the right. And you can see we actually have child workers. We have women doing this sort of work. Uh, uh, in India, you know, just to be able to earn a livelihood for their families. So uh, with knowing that we have unequal development across the globe, we often refer to more and less developed countries. And that refers to uneven levels of development between countries. It's usually expressed by the core periphery model, whereas, whereby the economically advanced countries, such as the United States, Japan, and England, are seen as comprising the core, while economically marginal countries constitute the periphery. Other terms used to refer to global economic inequalities include first, second, and third worlds, and the north-south uh, divide, the terms more developed and more developed, less developed countries, and less developed countries are also used uh, when we talk about the um, differences in uh, well-being uh, between countries. 
So let's take a look at some of these indicators on this chart, um, GNI per capita. Um, so um, uh, indicators of economic development include things like GNI per capita, GDP, uh, annual, uh, annual percent of growth in GDP, the human development uh, index, percent of population, life expectancy, uh, under age five mortality, uh, uh, and changes in those sorts of things in gender equity. So uh, development has both qualitative and quantitative dimensions to it. Um, measures, of, measure, uh, measures of structural changes, such as a shift from agricultural to manufacturing activities and changes in the allocation of labor, capital, and technology. Development implies an improvement in standard of living. As I mentioned before, things like education, uh, healthcare, political organization. And as I mentioned before, growth refers to the increase in the size of the system. So uh, agricultural or indus industrial input. Economic systems may grow, yet not lead to increased levels of development, as I mentioned before. So looking at the definition of some of these uh, terms that we see here, we're talking about gross domestic product. Uh, gross domestic product is a traditional measure of the size of a country's economy. Refers to all the or to, refers to the value of all final goods and services produced within a country's borders. And so you can see um, uh, we also have gross national income, and this was formerly known as the gross national product. Okay, uh, this refers to the GDP of a country plus net income from abroad. It is considered misleading and incomplete because it does not consider non-market economic activities, nor does it consider the degradation or depletion of natural resources that may limit future economic growth. And as we go throughout the semester, you're going to see a chart similar to the one in slide 33, where we'll see the GNI uh, per capita. And they're using something called the purchasing power parity which takes into account differences in currencies uh, across countries. And also, we know that different uh, goods have different values in different countries as well. And so it tries to take that into account. But generally, the higher the GNI per capita, the better off people are. Now, I, I want to caution you is that this is kind of like an average, right? So even though the average in the United States might be 48,430, according to this uh, chart. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody uh, is living at that level. We know that there are many people who have uh, income well below that in the United States, and we also know that there are people who have an income well above that. We also are interested in growth rates of economy, so, and you can see China's economy is growing extraordinarily rapidly and has been for at least the half, uh, last half decade, or I'm sorry, the last decade. Uh, we also look at things like the Human Development Index, which is a, uh, which is a uh, combination of a variety of different economic and social indicators, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we uh, uh, move, uh, move forward. And then we also talk about po uh, poverty, and you can see that sometimes refer, uh, looked at as the percent of the population living below $2 a day. Life expectancy is a good indicator of the access and affordability of um, health care, as is under age five mortality, is also another good indicator of accessibility to uh, health care, both prenatal and postnatal health care for families. Uh, and we, uh, we really like to see improvements in that. 
particularly in countries that have very high uh, infant mortality rates uh, at one time period and then show a significant improvement, such as Bangladesh, uh, 149 children uh, per thousand were dying, uh, under the age of five were dying in 1990. And we see an improvement to 2008 that has dropped to, to 54, which is really very good. And then gender equity tells us a bit about how equal females are to men in a society. And you can see, we know in some societies that particularly Pakistan has a very traditional society. Females are much less equal, treated much less equally than are men. So all these are important concepts to understand. <clears throat> so, uh, so economic development, this is just another map. This is human development indicators. Again, it's a composite of things, social development indicators and things like that that we take a look at. And you can see um, that um, um, the, uh, this human development indicator, you can see rich countries of the world, particularly United States, Canada, Western Europe, usually rank very high. Poor countries uh, usually rank uh, quite low on some of these indicators. So um, indicators of social development uh, are measures that relate to the conditions and quality of human life. The human development indicator is an index that's used by the United Nations. Uh, it's an index that combines data on life expectancy, literacy, educational attainment, gender equity, and income, conveys a sense of a country's human and social development. And again, you can see the spatial patterns or the geographic patterns of, of those sorts of uh, income or, or those sorts of uh, indicators. Uh, I've already mentioned indicators, it's the international definition of poverty is living le on less than $2 a day. Uh, deep poverty is defined as living on less than $1 per day U.S. Okay, and you can see um, uh, this would be Sri Lanka and you can see the percentage of people in Sri Lanka living on less than $2 a day. Okay, and then um, under age five mortality, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, a widely used indicator of um, of uh, social conditions, the measurement refers to the number of children who die before the age of, of five years of age per 1,000 people um, within that age bracket. Uh, mortality levels are influenced by availability and access to food, health services, and public sanitation. And then, of course, we have um, uh, gender equity, uh, which I've already mentioned, refers to the different uh, conditions and quality of life between um, men and women. A common measurement is the ratio of male to female students enrolled in primary and secondary schools. So, you know, if a country is using its, uh, its income to provide things as uh, receiving polio vaccine for children, improving women's literacy and things like that, we would think of that as being uh, a good use of a country's income and improving uh, the social development and quality of life for its population. So that really brings us to the end of chapter one. And so just <clears throat> in conclusion, uh, globalization is, a, is, a, is driving a fundamental reorganization of cultures and economies through changes in communication technologies, transnational firms, and Western consumer habits. Uh, globalization involves both positive and negative changes. It is very controversial. In many developing regions, population and settlement issues 
uh, resolve around rapid population growth, family planning, migration, rapid urbanization. The trends of global cultural homogenization and countercurrents of local cultural and ethnic identity result in considerable tension, and we'll be seeing this throughout the text or throughout the semester. Terrorism has emerged as a primary global geopolitical issue, and uh, the increasing disparity between uh, rich and poor uh, is a major economic and social uh, concern. And uh, just one more thing uh, as we go through. Uh, uh, I just wanted to mention, as we go through various regions of the world, we'll be taking a look at uh, five uh, themes in particular. We'll start out each region of the world taking a look at its physical and environmental geography. Then we'll take a look at the population and settlement geography. Cultural coherence and diversity will be the third theme. Um, Geopolitical uh, framework uh, within the region, but also its relations ships to regions outside uh, its, itself, and then we'll also be taking at economic and social development and the geographies of those uh, uh, development issues as well. So that brings to a conclusion uh, chapter one. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, set of lectures, and uh, I'll be talking to you for chapter two.